Uh, he doesn't know this, but I actually have a secret business crush on him. Uh, he flew in from Richmond, Virginia to talk about how he's done thousands of transactions, including on track to do 450 this year. If this is your first time tuning in, I am Steve Trang, sales trainer for some of the top wholesalers in the country, and I'm on a mission to create 100 millionaires. One question I get all the time is how to become the 100, one of the 100 millionaires. The information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become one in the next five to seven years. If you will take consistent action, you will become one. If you want to get there faster, send me a DM on Instagram. We'll see if we can help you. If you get value out of the show, please tag a friend below or share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. And this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Frank to answer. You ready? Yes, sir. All right. So first question is a softball is what got you into real estate? So um, I graduated from the University of Florida with a degree in construction management, but I actually- Highly relevant. Yeah, so I got into construction because my dad and my granddad were my heroes, and they were both in construction. Uh, and also because I'm not smart enough to be a doctor. Uh, I went to the University of Florida. I thought I'd go be a pediatrician, and I was like, I'm not good. I, I'm not cut out for this. So I became a, a, a construction guy. I ended up working for a publicly traded home builder for just under 12 years. Uh, I moved from Florida to the DC metro market. I started off one rung above the guy that cleans the toilets. Within five years, I was a vice president. 12 years in, I was five per- years to assistant toilet cleaner. Yeah, from there to <laughs> VP. Uh, and then the last uh, five, six years, I was a vice president uh, running profit centers. Um, but it was you know, the, the, the deepest part of the recession, and it was just miserable. So I'm like, screw this. If I can figure out how to quit in January of 2009, I can figure out how to make money in real estate. And I did. So I started buying houses off the MLS. I just started flipping them. I used some of my own cash. And then as the MLS started to dry up over time, I started finding other ways to do it direct seller marketing and advertising. Uh, and that's now led me to a team of just shy of 50 people where we're gonna do 400 plus deals this year. So you get your degree yep. in construction management. You get a job that suits it. Yes. Right, so 12 years, so this is like 97. 98, yep. 98. So you get a job, 98. You're moving your way up. And if I remember correctly, during the recession, they just made life more and more miserable in new builds, construction. Uh-huh. Is that kind of what your experience was through as the recession progressed? Yeah, so I had a team of like 75 that dwindled down to like 23. And what I found that I was doing is I had no support staff anymore. And they were having me in all these meetings and everything was just miserable. Yeah. And it used to be able to do like a couple hundred bucks. It wasn't a big deal on a mortgage. It became really, really just every cent started to matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just wasn't fun. Like you and I just left an incredible event today with a billionaire, right? We're going to probably talk about it. <laughs> and what he talked about is just making an impactful life. And I, I, did, I wasn't as strong mentally then as I am now, but I just knew this was not the definition of happiness and the life I wanted to lead. And I always knew deep down I was an entrepreneur. And um, How did you know that? So every sales contest I've entered since I was six, I've won. And (laughs) there you uh, go. I just loved it. Like that's the stuff that lit me up. The selling part or the the, the strategy and gaming part? All of it and winning. So like seventh grade, we went to a, like an integrated school mm-hmm. and um, like I won and this kid like chased after me because I was in a money, what they called the money machine and I won 212 bucks. Mm-hmm. So it was like, like I was like, oh, like I, someone was coming after me like, they didn't give me the money, it's, it's at the office. But like I wanted to win. I wanted to be the person that everybody knew was the best. And I don't know what it is about those sales contests when you're a little kid, but you 
you're kind of like afraid to be who you are. That's kind of the angst of being a kid. Yeah. But I, you're kind of a nerd if you win that. And I'm not a nerdy kind of kid. But I was like, I don't care. I want to win. I want people to know I'm the best. And I want to just go out and show up and do it. And uh, that part was fun. The strategy back then was just basically just hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't really a term in the 80s, but it was that's what I did. And um, But that started to get success and make me feel confident. All right. So then you work in construction. Again, it's, it's kind of crazy to go from assistant toilet cleaner to VP to managing 75 people. Did you do your first real estate transaction before you quit? Or did you quit, burn the bridges, and then go for it? All right, so one of the reasons I moved from Florida to Virginia, like one of the few people who leave Florida if you grow up there, is the company that I found was an incredible fit for me. So I knew that I was not a pediatrician when I got the organic chemistry. Like, I, I can't figure this crap out. I have to go do something else. But what I, so a couple of years later, when I was graduating from college, I was like, okay, there's a home builder that's going to teach me construction. And if I do a good job in construction, they're going to teach me estimating. And if I do a good job in estimating, they're going to teach me sales. And if I do a good job in those three jobs, then I'm going to do, they're going to teach me management. So I had the ability to learn these skills. The other thing they had was an incentive. They would give you 10% off a lumber package if you built your own house. So I moved there when I graduated college. I think I was just at 23 years old. By 25, I bought a lumber package. I bought a lot. I built a house. I couldn't afford it. I moved people like into every single room. I had like an intern living in an unfinished basement because the mortgage was more than I took home. And by doing that, I built my first real estate deal. I got promoted a couple of times. Went from making like 44 grand to 100 grand in like two and a half years. I kicked out all my roommates. So you were house hacking. Yeah. And then um, that was my first deal when I was 23, 24. Wow. Yeah. And then I did that three times and that's how I became a millionaire for the first time. Just from house hacking. Yep. So I while you were working for somebody else. Yes. So that's huge. Yeah. Uh, Cause most people are like, how can I quit? Right? Like I'm re- relying on this income. There's this, um, you know, do, do I have enough savings? You were already there just because you were intentional with it. There's an IRA. So, so Steve knows me well enough to know that I know my way around tax law and I know how to utilize systems to my advantage. And, and I'm not that smart, but I'm really smart at this. And what I learned is that the IRS will give you up to $250,000 in free income if you sell a house, make that much profit, but it's your primary residence. And there's a bunch of rules. So if you're listening to this, please go look at the rules. Don't take them from me. We are not accountants. Yeah, follow the rules. But if you follow the rules, I made 250 sold that one, built another one, made more than 250, sold that one. I actually invested in an investment property while that happened. And while all that was happening, I had some other stuff, some money in like the markets, it all went up and boom, I was a multimillionaire, or I was a millionaire. Okay, were you still a millionaire when you quit? Yeah, multi. Multi-millionaire when you quit? Yep. All right, so what? I had two, it wasn't more than that. It was, just, <laughs> it was like, like, like a hair above two. So what was the? desire though to get into real estate I mean, was it because real estate was a vehicle or is real estate something you're passionate about i knew it and um i did love it working for home builder i didn't love it as much as i love it now um i knew it i knew i had an advantage i knew i had been trained in an incredibly good company so because of those things um when i quit it was never like i'm gonna go look for a job or i'm gonna go get into a different segment of business every conceivable advantage I had was in home building. And I knew that, and it's really hard to start a business. So I was like, why not take advantage of every conceivable advantage that I have? So that's what I did. And it was 2009, 
it was really easy to find things that were undervalued. And you mm-hmm. could see it was undervalued because of the fact that it, you know, there was tons of inventory just sitting there. Right. So your first deal after all of this was from MLS? Yeah. Um, and at that time, MLS was not entirely competitive. No, it wasn't. And then, so was that first deal walk in the park? Was there any lessons there? So I did some short sales. I did a first deal off the MLS, but I'm gonna tell you the best lesson, okay? Like, I don't remember my first deal or my first short sale, but I do remember my first wholesale. Okay. So I was learning it, and I didn't really get it, right? And I was, every fiber in my being is telling me like, I'm going to jail. So <laughs> I had literally done at this point $750 million worth of transactions, maybe a billion working at the builder. And I knew my way around real estate. I'd done my own stuff. My assignment fee, I think, was 3700 bucks, which is pathetic. And that felt illegal. It felt, and it felt, and, and like I felt like I was going around people and like I didn't have the right legal team. I did it with no training. I just tried to figure it out, like Googling what is, you know, wholesale. And, um, and, I, and I, like every time there was a siren, I was certain they were coming after me. Like that's how I felt. And I remember that deal closed, some time passed. And I'm like, I mean, I worried about what people thought of me for doing this. Like, but I literally remember Steve, like I was scared to death and was sure I was going to prison. So let's talk about how you found that first wholesale deal. Yep. I think I found it. I don't remember. All I remember is I, w- I was going to jail. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I found it through MLS or something mm-hmm. and I navigated my way around it. And so you assigned it yeah, without any training. Cause I mean, at this point, what did you have as a resource? I didn't have anything. I mean, was it, was bigger pockets around at this? No. Okay. So I mean, it was a barren wasteland. Like yeah. he basically had the short sale kit all over YouTube with like his <laughs> polka dotted hair. That would, those are your best options. We're talking about Corey here. That wasn't, that well, Corey's worse. No, I'm kidding, Corey. But uh, this was um, Nathan Jurowitz. Like, he, they were doing short sales, and him and Chris McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. I actually went to one of their events in Vegas to learn I just that. met Chris yeah, he's a good this dude. week, yeah. Yeah, um, Chris played T-Bowl, one of my best friends, so I knew him, like, but the point is, there wasn't a lot of great training. There wasn't yeah. masterminds. Jason hadn't started Collective Genius yet. Um, so it was kind of figured out yourself. So and then you're I was like trying to. Looking up on, like, Bing, like, contract law on, on wholesaling? Yeah, and I... I, I there was a double assignment that you could do with short sale. So I kind of just tried to do something along those the lines. A to B, B to C thing? Yeah. That one's scary. Yeah. So <laughs> it's really hard to start this if you don't have a plan. Now, my plan worked incredibly well coming out of college and following the rules and kind of understanding how to take advantage of a cool system. Mm-hmm. But when I got into wholesale, I was a disaster. Yeah. So were there any failures or struggles when you, when you first started wholesaling? So Jason Medley, who is the founder of Collective Genius, where I work, um, he says this all the time. He's like, Frank Hava stood up in front of a group of people and said, postcards, those things don't work. (laughs) He loves talking about it. Um, But so the first handful of times I sent out postcards, I I mean, they were terrible. So Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll tell you this, you'll find this interesting. Like I'm a big dude. Right. Yeah. I'm a fairly intimidating human. I'm, you know, over six foot tall, well over 225 pounds. I play basketball against you. I, I've experienced this. I'm a big dude. Yes. Right. So like, I don't get intimidated by many human beings that aside from maybe like, you know, linebackers in the NFL or offensive linemen. So my first hire when I quit my job and started my business was a part-time bookkeeper. My second hire was a, uh, an acquisitions like manager was what we call it, but it mm-hmm. loosely stated. Um, do you want to know what the motivation, what do you think my motivation was in, uh, in having this person 
answer so, the phones. So that you wouldn't have to do it anymore? So the people would yell at me. I didn't want to get yelled at. I couldn't stand it. Like when people would send you the postcard back with the writing or go to hell or things mm-hmm. along those lines, I was always very, very scared that, um, you know, I, I just, I felt bad. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm really annoying this person or something like that. So I stopped. Which is a very natural fear a lot of people have. I, I mean, I still have these conversations to this day with newer wholesalers. Right. How did you overcome that? reluctance or that fear um i hired someone and let them deal with it (laughs) that's how i dealt with it yeah but today you wouldn't have that fear no i mean i don't want to get on the phone and talk to people but i don't have the fear so one of my big regrets in business any guesses what it is um not starting earlier is usually what i hear a lot is yeah mine is not that mine is uh, because i started at 23 essentially 24 uh, mine is throwing out this booklet that came in the mail. It was a- an animated booklet of how you can go to hell. So someone that I mailed <laughs> postcards to literally sent me back a booklet of how I could go to hell. <laughs> it was hysterical. That's so, pretty cool. So how I pitched it. Um, yeah. But nowadays, I, we don't really worry about that because we know we flipped the script. Mm-hmm. I've gotten to be a, a professional at this. You train my staff. My staff tunes in once or twice a week to work with you because I think you're great. You. Um, and what we do is we drill on. We're helping. We're not hurting. If, if we're reaching out to you, we're doing it for a reason because we have data that is telling me that there's probably a chance you need to sell. Mm-hmm. But if you tell me, please go away, take me off your list, we will. Uh, that's right. fine. If we're not the right company for you, that's fine. But what I flip from is I'm chasing you for money to I'm offering you a service to help solve a problem. Right. And that feels very different, but I didn't have that fundamentally 12 years ago, but I have it. <laughs> I have it today. Yeah. Well, how could you have it 12 years ago? Right. Um, all right. So what first one kind of hazing on your first wholesale deal, but when did you, about what year did you start growing your wholesale business? So, 2012, 2013. Is and did started. you grow it because, I mean, you obviously had a background in construction. Were you, do, were you doing it because you didn't have enough funds? What was the reason for wholesaling versus flipping, which was your bread and butter? So I was a fixed and flipper. In 2012, uh, end of 2012, I joined Collective Genius. I met a bunch of people who were better at wholesaling than me. So I copied what they did in my market and I got better at it. My goal when I started was not to just do one thing. I was an executive with a publicly traded company. I had stock options. Like I had a vision even from day one of I want to grow something. I wanted flips. I wanted income that paid the bills every month. You know, the big elephants that you can kill that you can eat off of. And I wanted the stuff that kept the electricity on that were kind of smaller fees. And then I wanted to build a portfolio of rentals. And I've been saying this for a decade and a half because I own a bunch of rentals, it was a hedge against inflation. I've, I've actually stopped saying that because mm-hmm. there hadn't been inflation in so long, but now we've seen it. And prices have gone up tremendously with homes, which has been a, an incredible boon for me. Um, but w- it was a desire to build a full suite business and not waste marketing dollars is the reason why I ultimately added wholesale. Now, you, you, you mentioned a few buckets there. Fixing and flipping, wholesaling. Actually, before we jump into that, what were some of the early or major struggles you had in wholesaling besides the not wanting to get yelled at? Do you know what the difference between a professional and a hobbyist is? Profitability? I would argue that it's consistently generating leads. Mm -hmm. So I was a hobbyist until I could consistently generate leads. 
once I could consistently generate leads, that is when it changed. Right. Then you have to determine what's a good lead, what's a bad lead, where do you spend your time, where do you not. Um, but those are the things that we really had to figure out is who's a lead, who isn't, who do we spend time with, what do we do with it, and then what's the best disposition strategy. Mm-hmm. Like in the beginning, you're guessing. Like right now, you know me as someone who's incredibly precise. I can see the future and what I'm looking at because I can see multiple avenues, multiple exits. But I've been doing this six days a week, 60, 70 hours a week for a decade plus. Yeah. So it makes me someone who's a tactician where I wasn't at first. You weren't, but you're a strategist, right, on the PI? Um, I think I'm a, yeah, I'm a strategist. Yeah. It's interesting something you brought up here because it's something that came up yesterday in a different conversation was how do we train people to tell if it's a lead or not a lead in the first, you know, 30 seconds to a minute? You and I can tell uh-huh. instantly. Yeah. But a brand new salesperson that you bring into your team, they can't tell the difference. That's right. So one of the things that we teach in our office and one of the things that we teach, I, I do coaching as well. Uh, one of the things we teach through my coaching platform is CHAMP qualifying um, and C-H-A-M-P. Mm-hmm. And it basically is, um, is there a challenge? Is there something you can overcome and help? Are you talking to a decision maker? And is there some kind of urgency? So those are the things that if you drive at those pretty quickly, and I went through that really fast, but if you can drive at those things pretty quickly, you can determine this person is really motivated to sell. There's some reason that we're getting on the phone together or not. Yeah. Um, and then I don't, I wasn't there. Uh, so Max Man is my business partner. Um, he mentioned that he saw you speak at Flip to Freedom. Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. So it didn't seem like it was that long from when you were already fixing flipping, joining Collective Genius, started wholesaling, and then you were speaking. Yeah. What was that? So here's like? a really cool story. So I was at um, an event in 2010 or 11 with uh, Jurowitz and um, McLaughlin. And it was in Vegas, and I got an uncle that lives out here. He was hanging out with us yesterday. And um, I was like, hey, I'm going to Vegas. you have any interest in joining me? I got a hotel. You can just rack up with me. He's like, sure. So we were there, and I was like, in five years, I had no business saying this. In five years, I'll be up on one of those stages. And I had gone to Collective Genius in 2000, middle of 2016, and I did a presentation on market cycles. And what it was was my opinion of how you can analyze what happens in, in a real estate cycle and like what you need to pay attention to. When I did that presentation, it helped me get clarity on what, um, what to do with a lead because the cycle matters. Mm-hmm. If everybody's selling, it's very different than if everybody's buying. And Correct. you need to know how to utilize an asset to your advantage that way. Well, that presentation and building it kind of gave me the uh, the ability to process it myself, but I put it out there, Sean Terry saw it, and he's like, I need you to come speak in my event. That was incredible. Yeah. So I talked a lot about how that whole thing went together and I did it at Sean's event, and that was a blast. So again, you're in a unique situation here, but you have multiple buckets of income or disposition, however you want to handle yep. the, the property. Yeah. Property comes in yep. today. Yep. What are all the different exits for you? So um, I think we have to first start with what properties do we, what properties do we touch? Sure. We touch single family homes. Um, anything that's a home, we touch. Um, we have apartments, we touch those. We touch office, uh, we touch land, uh, a very little bit of retail. Um, so that's what we touch. So basically any type of real estate, we will play in. Leads come in um, one of a couple of different ways through paid advertising is the, the, the majority. What is paid advertising? TV, radio, SEO, PPC, postcards, SMS, 
I mean, we do it all. We do mm-hmm. everything. I've got a staff of like almost 30 on the sales side. So we do all of that. We also get a ton of deals from referrals. Um, I've had a handful of realtor relations for 10 plus years now who bring me deals. Um, I have people on my staff who work realtors. And then um, I bought a 40,000 square foot office building, had a major title issue, it required tremendous patience from us to finally get it to close. And we were cool during the process. And that agent has now brought us three buildings because he liked working with us. Nice. We performed, we did what we said we were gonna do, we weren't a pain in the ass. And because of all those things that's led. So like these things all start to snowball over time. Right, and so again, just for emphasis, 2009 is when you started this. Correct. And so, 12 years to get here. And the reason why I want, I'm asking all these different exit strategies because I want to dive deep into each and every single one of these. Sure, let's do it. So let's start off with, you start off with rentals. Yep. So what does your rental portfolio look like today? Uh, I own right around 300. 300. Yep. So with your rental portfolio, how, what are some of the deciding factors into what you keep as a rental? Um, debt service coverage ratio is big. Neighborhood. Elaborate on what debt service. All right. (laughs) So, um, in its simplest form, what debt service coverage ratio is, is this. If you are going to take in enough money and net enough money to pay your mortgage, um, most banks are going to want 1.2. So let me make this English. Let's just say that everything that you spend money on, including the mortgage, is $1,000 a month. They want you to rent it for at least 1200 so that's a 1.2 debt service coverage ratio. And this is very simple, simplified, sure. but that's what it looks like. So I want to make sure it's going to cover. I want to make sure it's in a neighborhood that's in the path of progress. So there are a handful of areas in Richmond where I won't buy. Years ago, I came to Phoenix. I met a guy, I don't know if you know him or not, his name is John Burley, but mm-hmm. he talked about areas in Phoenix that were red areas. And this is a way bigger metro than Richmond. So there was a lot of red areas, like we don't buy there. There's a couple of red areas in Richmond where we don't buy, but mostly the areas are yellow, orange, or green. So we'll buy those. Um, I know who I am. I am not a luxury buyer of real estate um, on the rental side. I provide housing. Shelter. Shelter is a human need. Um, when I got into this business in 2009, there was tons of people who couldn't afford, were losing their houses and needed shelter. So what I looked at is from a recessionary viewpoint, there's always going to be people who need to rent no matter the market. We just learned this during COVID. Mm-hmm. Some can pay, but they need places to go. So um, what we do is we kind of focus on that um, workforce housing type of product in the path of progress. It has to have the finances in line in order to properly work, but those are the things that we look for. So path of progress, and then at least 1.2 debt service, co- debt yep. service coverage ratio, and that is important because if you're doing a refinance later on, it needs to be financeable where you can refinance at a lower rate or whatever. So there's a woman who we both know that came up to me yesterday, she doesn't own any rentals, she's 25 or 26, and she's like, how do I do this? I, I, how do I do it without cash? So when I started doing this, the Burr method was not like the, the cute acronym wasn't out there yet, but um, that's something that I figured out pretty early. Like I'm going to run out of money if I don't figure out how to get my money back. So you need to buy deep enough or at enough of a discount where in its simplest form, let's say you buy a house that's worth a hundred grand at the end, these numbers are going to be skewed and it's hard to find anything that's worth a hundred grand, only a hundred grand nowadays in any market, but let's just use it. You buy the house for 50, you need to be in and out of it with soft costs like closing costs and everything for under 30. So that way, if you get 80% on the back end, you can pay everything off, get all your money back out. All right. Now, if you do it really well, instead of buying the house at 50, you buy it sub 50, 42, 45, 40. 
because that will give you somewhere between ten and five and ten thousand dollars of cash that you can then stockpile right. and build more. And that's what we did. Exactly. So then one of the key ingredients then is being able to do the burr and and, and, and we're trying to figure out whether you want to keep it or not. That's right. So I own a bunch of companies at this point and I have 100% ownership in all of them with the exception of the one where I have 99.99% because I sold that small percentage out to get a historical tax credit. Got it. So like I own all of it, so you're gonna run out of money if you don't figure this out pretty early. Got it. And then the other thing you do is, um, do you do more flipping or do you do more wholesaling? What would you think right now? Uh, well, right now flipping. Wholesale. Wholesale. Wholesale for sure. I mean, there's so many people in the wholesale market mm-hmm. and they're buying it for incredible numbers. And I showed a stat yesterday when I was speaking from stage, we've been able to drive our um, average spread on a wholesale deal up by over 30% in the last two years. Now, some of it's we've gotten better, but most of it is the market is hotter. We're house all fl- looking really smart right now. House flipping is really popular. It wasn't terribly popular in 2008, 2009, 2010. Right. But now it is. So we're taking advantage of that euphoria. What we'll ultimately do is we might mark a property up to a certain number. And if we can't get our profit, say, okay, we're going to unlock this through flip. So, but we like, you know, if we think there's a $35,000 wholesale fee and I won't take a penny less because it makes sense to flip it, we're going to do that and then we bring it to market. We'd rather take it down than, you know, make less than we can. So, so then is there a number or is it per property? Like if we say like, if I can make 35,000 wholesale or wholesaling, if I can't, then I'm flipping it or what? Is so it? it's about 50, 50%. So if I think it's worth, um, I want to flip, flip the thinking. So if I have a house where I can make a 35,000 wholesale fee, I need to make at least 70 if I'm going to flip it. So it. that the half is that 35 number. And the point of that is, it's better to get something than nothing mm-hmm. and yet one in hand is better than two in the bush so it, there's so many things that can go wrong with a flip now the only time we break that exception if it's, the house is newer it's in an incredible location it's on a street or an area that we know very well we've done it a couple of times where we've got, bought a house for a second or a third time like we have a couple of houses that we bought three times like no shit um <laughs> so like we bought it we renovated it someone brought it back to us we bought like it, like crazy stuff so um like unless we have a history with it or we know that like this is a no-brainer we won't break that formula got it so then how much are you doing a month right now wholesaling how much are you doing a month flipping it varies but this year oh, i had the statistic yesterday it's roughly if you take the properties that we're just disposing of um, not other stuff that we're bringing to market with lots and things along those lines. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to decipher it this way. We generate a lead. I would say about 65 to 75% of those leads turn into wholesale deals right now, 25 to 35% turn into either rentals or flips. Got it. Most of it is wholesale. Now, um, I want to take a step back here. We were talking about uh, rentals just a moment ago. Um, and there was something you said yesterday, unbreakable. Yeah. And that was something that I'd never I cursed before it, but yeah, you did. I don't curse. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> so I do. Um, right beforehand, or oh, we were talking about that and you know, we were playing basketball this morning, right? In Scottsdale and it's like steel backboard, concrete post, and triple or quadruple rim, whatever. And we kind of made the joke this morning before you showed up. It's like, this is what Frank's talking about. Like this thing's impossible to break. Yeah. Right. No one will ever have to replace this. Right. Can you talk about how the importance of the unbreakable concept has been or how much impact has been to your rental? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. So I said two things yesterday. I thought you were actually referring to when I said indestructible, mm -hmm. which is what I want my business to be during a yes. recession. But what you're talking about specifically is rentals. And what I call my rentals is, I call it, <coughs> excuse me, this dry Arizona air. Um, what I look at with every single one of my rentals is that it's a battleship and I'm sending that sucker out to battle. So what we do is we value engineer or think ahead or be proactive. Um, I'm, I'm going to get a little granular, Steve. Please. All right. So ca do you know what CapEx is? Uh, capital expenditures. All right. So what is that? The cost for keeping a property, keeping and maintaining rental property. Okay. So specifically CapEx is usually the stuff that you do. There's maintenance fees mm -hmm. or maintenance work the stuff that you do after you do your major renovation. So what we do is we do our capital expenditures. A capital expenditure is something you can write off, essentially. It's a big ticket item. Mm -hmm. It's windows, it's roof, it's HVAC, it's electric. So we try and do that stuff first. So we have a checklist on every house. If the roof doesn't have at least 10 years left on it, we rip it out. If the windows are more than 15 years old, we rip them out. Um, now, sometimes we have to buy it at a number where it does you just can't afford to, but what we prefer to do is do this. So we go through and look at the home up front. And we say, okay, we want to eliminate service tickets and we want to do that up front. So what we do is go through and analyze the property and then do all the CapEx before we move somebody in. The other things we do, it's more of a, deletion model and it's intentional ceiling fans microwaves disposals um all of these things what do you think of when you hear those uh these are th calls you get at two o'clock in the morning but breaking things that can break yeah you know, alex things that can break for mm -hmm. 200 so <laughs> these are all things that can break so what we look at is it, we're providing shelter these are people who are in the section 8 program many of which have been there for years we give them a really nice house. It's fresh. It's clean. It's got all new stuff. But they're not living in the house that you and I lived in or live in. I've got, you know, two ranges. They're not used to that. They're used mm -hmm. to electric. Um, they, they just want a house that the electric bill is not $300. So the standard is very different. So what we do is we give them a great house. We take some of these things out. They can break up front. And they don't, ex they don't expect them. If they don't need me to provide a microwave, they can provide it themselves. And the difference is if they break that microwave, someone knocks it off the countertop. It's theirs. They have to fix it. It's not, a, it's not a service ticket for us. So we're proactive on what we do before they move in, and then we what we really try and focus on is what things do we don't that don't need to be in the house that still make them rentable that we can you know maximize our rents and minimize our service tickets. Yeah, I was actually thinking about your talk on the drive home, and I was just thinking, what happens if they don't have a disposal? <laughs> just goes into this. I mean, does that not? make this uh the replacing the mainline more expensive down the road or no um we haven't ran into it yet so i'm sure we've had people flush everything down there um i remember all my apartments in college and i lived in nice apartments none of them had disposals interesting you just figure it out you buy one of those strainers that costs like two bucks yeah and then you you, you probably get sick of your sink clogging and you know, or calling the maintenance department, or we, we, hell, I don't even know. My service department might even give them a, a strainer, and we put it on the drain for them. Yeah. But I mean, that, that's how you solve that problem. So, how did you? And this might go into your indestructible uh, conversation. So, I remember when I first signed up for CG, and this is actually we're coming up in a year and a half now. So, when I first signed up, and I went to the portal, the membership portal, okay, and I'm going through all these different processes and procedures, okay, and like half of them are under Frank Cava. <laughs> how? did you 
come up with all these different processes and procedures? Because you were saying that, you know, you're not smart enough for, for chemistry or a pediatrician. Yeah. How did you come up with all these different things to think about, like, I'm not going to have a disposal? Yeah. I'm smart enough for construction. Um, I learned it from other people who did it. I modeled after others. I always would find people who are five to 10 years ahead of me. When I had 25 rentals, I found people that had a two or 300. Um, when I had 100, I found people that had 700. When I had 10 employees, I found people with 50. And I just asked them questions. And I was always, I've got a good personality. I've been blessed with that. People like having me around. I'm typically, I buy dinner. So it's, I'm, I'm, an, I'm easy to get along with from yeah. that perspective. So people will invite me and I usually make fun of them, which successful people freaking love. They like do. Nobody makes fun of successful people. Like they, 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 they love being like normal. Mm -hmm. So that's my gift is I can make people like that feel normal and tell them go screw yourself or something <laughs> like that. So they invite me to their office and I meet their wives and their kids and then they show me their secrets. And someone ultimately taught them. And they love someone who's taking notes and listening and following up. And Very true. Yeah. I can say for sure, whenever someone asks me for help and I start thinking, don't you need to write this down? Right. Like, part of me gets like, what's the point of talking to this person? There's something else that's really critical too. You're not going to get there on your own. So you're better off finding people who are better than you. Steve and I are both huge proponents of the collective genius. There's tons of people who are doing it and doing it at a very high level. If someone is nice enough and kind enough to take you in, write them a thank you card, like by hand, like, like do it in the airport before you leave. Mm -hmm. You would not imagine how many people comment on that. I, I've gotten out of the habit a little bit, which I'm kind of a, not proud to say, but I carry thank you cards with me and stamps wherever I go. And I typically just jot something down real quick. It doesn't have to be terribly formal, but that's, <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that gets you invited back for a second trip, mm -hmm. which is a big deal because the, there's people who know more than you do, and they're usually willing to share it. But there's still an element of you that's extremely tactical, right? I mean, the again, going to building your business to be indestructible. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anyone that's taken to that extreme, and it's, I think maybe we should talk about that a little bit sure. so they can kind of get your, your, your mindset. Yep. Um, so we have been in business now for over 12 years. And we just opened up our second market. Now I've dabbled a little bit in Virginia Beach. We dabble a little bit in Charlottesville, but like full on, we're actually in Virginia Beach. We're on TV, we're sending postcards, we're doing stuff in the market. But I waited 12 years to get there because I was pretty sure that I wasn't good enough and I wasn't strong enough to do it in a second market. Um, people argue with me that, the, you know, we should have done it sooner. It's really, you usually don't drown by not taking, you, you drown by taking on too much water, not the opposite. You can't, right. you, you might not make as much, but you're not going to drown if you don't get in the water. You can't make any stupid mistakes. That's it. So what we have done, and initially it was just me, but now I have a whole team of people, is we look at things over and over again. And I had someone ask me a question about like, you know, houses I refuse to buy. If a house was built before World War II, and it's built of a wood frame, I won't buy it. it with rare exception. Mm -hmm. Do you know why? Uh, because the costs can get pretty high pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. And the other reason is because I bought a bunch of them <laughs> and they all went wrong. So they all were terrible. Like they all had termites or all these other things, but I didn't learn them again. I'm not that smart. I didn't learn it after the first one. I learned it after like the 13th. Right. Why the hell do we always have these houses that have termites? What is it? So what we did was we go back and analyze it and pull the HUD and say, 
1932, 1928, 1937. Holy crap, these things are all old. They're all mm. pre-World War II. All right, stop buying wood frame pre-World War II. So that's something you learn. Now, memories fade. So we write stuff down and we come up with process. And I'm really good at process. Now, I suck at doing it, but I'm really good at making others do it. And I'm really good at following up to make sure they did it. Now I have a whole staff of people. I don't have to follow up with them. They just do it or they hold people accountable and it's all part of it. But that's how it started was with like little tells that we could kind of learn and we started to write those down. Then I tried to look at things from an efficiency standpoint. Like, okay, no pre-World War II houses of wood. Got it. What are some things that aren't defensive but are offensive that we can put in line and we can put things together on? What are some of those? Now, again, I came from a publicly traded builder. They're really, really organized. Like we had cost codes and all this stuff. So I took a bunch of that stuff with Mm -hmm. me anyways. But then we started to build systems on top of it. When I did that presentation about market cycles that ultimately got me on stage with Sean Terry and then ultimately got me the job with Jason with the Collective Genius, um, what I started to realize is I started to put pieces together. And then... So I had some of these little things kind of hanging out there, written down, but then I started to think with strategy and with like kind of precision of how I could attack. And what you see today is that, like, you know, there's technology in this space that we take for granted that Mm -hmm. wasn't here before. But if I want to target a certain neighborhood, we can target a certain neighborhood. We can target a certain street. It's very easy. We just make a phone call or send an email and poof, it's done. Um, Or I send the email, someone on my staff just does it, it goes. But those are things that we didn't used to have. But if you kind of think about what's your ultimate goal, my ultimate goal is to own assets. My ultimate goal is not to pay a ton of taxes. My ultimate goal is to have... Um, a hedge against inflation. My ultimate goal is if I get older and decide I want to stop working, I can afford to, right? Because I have these assets that put off income. So if you know what you're trying to do, which is build that, it really kind of helps you. And then I'm good at thinking about, okay, strategically, where do we go? What I talked about yesterday was kind of a hub and spoke model. Mm -hmm. Our hub is our direct to seller marketing and advertising. Our spokes are things like fix and flip, wholesale, retail, lots, uh, development, those kind of things. But a hub and a spoke isn't very effective. It doesn't have a wheel. The things that we have like on the outer edge of that wheel are headhunting, property management. I don't remember the other stuff I wrote down, but those are some of the things that we do as well. Consulting was on there. Consulting's on there. Coaching is on there. Mm -hmm. I think there was one, one other one. But those are the things that kind of support the business. So what we did is we needed staff. So we built a department for it. And then once we got good at it, we now bring that to the market and we are very selective in who we work with, but we'll provide headhunting services for certain business owners. And we're gonna do probably somewhere between 30 and 50 placements this year. It's profitable, but it also supports a business that I need internally. So that's my way of not just building, there's a service, that service is wholesale or uh, short sales or like, um, I don't know, What's some of the other stuff that people do that, that they're... One is retail flipping, short uh, wholesale. But de- like, there's these strategies that people use where it's like... Novation. De- okay, Novation. But what are some of the other ones like that were super popular? What did Tobek used to do? I've seen him in this office. He used to talk about how he used to do something. Remember? Uh, some kind yeah. of deed or something. The point is, like to me, those are just... That isn't a business. Mm-hmm. That is a service. It's a specialty. It's a specialty. It's something that gets added to, but it isn't the business. Right. For me, what we have is we have a hub, 
spokes and all kinds of ancillary stuff that brings the business together. We're getting better every single day by doing it, but we also get paid if we do it for others. And that to me is a business that is sustainable. You said something interesting, and I actually wrote down as an action item from day one, because I was in your room for the hot seat, which I always enjoy being in your room, because you run a tight ship. Um, I put down, not for 2021, but sometime in the near future, starting a property management company. Yep. And it's something I've resisted for a very long time, but you made some pretty compelling arguments. Right. So can you share those arguments? Sure. So here's the first thing. So you know this answer, because we just talked about this week, but... Most people think that the point where you want to add in property management is around 100 doors. And I argue that the break-even point is somewhere between 20 and 30 doors, depending on the rents. If your average rents between like 1,000 and 1,500 bucks, it's, in my opinion, it's about 27 houses. I've done the math. Um, if you're in a market where it's more expensive, it's probably lower than that. And if you're doing Airbnbs and other stuff, the numbers are lower. Yeah. And this is why. You can hire who you like who you think will do a great job, you can incentivize them and they are, if you are smart about it, you can incentivize them based upon their performance with the ORP portfolio. It's their focus. They're not working on other people's stuff, they're just working on your holdings. So that you have a captive audience, which is a really big deal. Versus a private manager that's got like 30, 50 clients. Right, or someone who like, you're just one of, like there's a person in my market, nice enough guy, um, I don't know how many he owns and, or how many he manages. It's into the thousands, but they're none, none of them are his. And it would take six to eight weeks to turn a house. Like we could do a house in six to eight hours. So it, like what you really, start to, you really start to realize is the number is way lower than people tell you on when it gets affordable because it's your money and you can prioritize it. That's a big thing. So with internal property management, I also have another tentacle to market where I can weigh what's happening in the market. When COVID happened last year, my property manager and I got together and she goes, nobody's renting. Like nobody's doing anything. She's like, rents have been going up. It's stopped. I'm like, okay, lower everything by a couple hundred bucks. Do what you think you need to do. If it gets aggressive, really aggressive, call me and let's talk about it. But I know because she's out there, she's on the phone. She's telling me what people in the forward. You know what the rental market's doing Boom. way before everybody else. Yes, and she works for me. So we're talking about it. And she wants to do her job because she's incentivized to do so. But it gives me another data point that I know is truthful. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is you can start to kind of sense not only what's happening with the market, but what kind of specs do you need? Where do you want to be? What do you want to look at? People are talking to this person and that person then shares it with you. Residents will give feedback about what they do and don't like. These are all things that make you stronger. The goal of the rental portfolio is to get a yield. That's what you're doing. You're, you're protecting yourself with tax and inflation risk but you're also giving yourself a yield. And if you do it right, you can retire off of it. So properly managing it gives you a huge advantage. Having someone who physically does it on staff, I think is, is a game changer. So let's just talk about, you, you. all right, we start in the middle. You're managing your stuff, 30 to 100, whatever. In my case, over 300, 100,000 feet of retail, uh, some commercial buildings, you know, blah, blah. Um, we've sold a handful of properties turnkey. And we sold a ton of properties wholesale. Most people who own wholesale houses or, turn, or rental houses have other jobs. They're not professionals like us. They work as an accountant and they don't have access to what we have access to and what we take for granted. So in a lot of instances, we treat them really well. They like us. And they're like, would you manage this for us? I'm like, yeah, sure, we'll do it. That's how it started. 
one at a time, two at a time. Now we're up to well over 125 individual owners. The number of properties is more. And we're gonna grow that segment of business. Now we've actually got enough staff and we got people who manage it from top to bottom where I go to a meeting for 90 minutes a week, I talk about property management, and I don't think about it again until that meeting comes up a week later. So we're doing all of these things. The goal is not to need money. Like it gives you an ability to live a different type of a life. For, for me, rentals is an annuity. If you're doing rentals and collecting rents, that's part of the annuity. Mm -hmm. But if you're managing rentals for other people, that's another part of your annuity. And an annuity is something that just pays you over time. So you might make, on average, we make roughly $250 per door per month. On rents, uh, our property management, I think we make two and a half, uh, we make um, a third of that, somewhere between a third and 2.5 divided. I don't know how to do that math. We make between 100 and like 125 bucks per month on every property that we manage. And how many are you managing right now? A uh, couple hundred. So, but it's getting to a couple, like, I think we'll get it over 500 in the next 12 months. And I mm -hmm. think in the next 24 months, we'll be over a thousand. But the point is, is you start to look at this, like, okay, I can go out and buy a thousand rentals. I can have a huge staff with a huge overhead. And I basically can run a cash neutral business just off of that. Right. Or you can have 600 that you own and you manage another 800 and you get there that way too, or some combination of both of those things. So what you start to realize is I need the service anyways, I'm really good at it, we can control it, I'm smarter because I have it in-house, oh, and it also pays me. Yeah. So these are the little things that if you put together, and then if you get to the point where you want to, you can sell a property management business at a very nice multiple, Right. it becomes, it becomes a whole exit strategy. You know, one thing that was interesting, uh, so Eric Brewer and I, yesterday we talked about uh, social media, mm -hmm. right, and how, how important it is to add that to your business. Right. And a lot of people, it's, it's just, I remember when I went from being just a regular W-2 employee to running my business, personally, I already knew about pay yourself first. If you want to build a savings, pay yourself first. Right. Right. But when I got into business, for whatever reason, I stopped doing that. Right. It's grind, 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 put everything back into the business. And then you read profit first. Like, oh, I can do that for my business too. Right. It's interesting to see the evolution because in, in we all know how to build business. You've got multiple entities. Yeah. Right. So we're saying like, how do I grow my social media component? And the answer is really simple. Hire somebody yes. to run that. But we all, as business owners, know how to hire people. We right. know how to run different departments, right. but that is for whatever reason is a gap. Sure. And, but you've already done that. You already got a person or persons and processes right. in place. Right. So I was a really terrible property manager three and a half years ago because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I went and found someone who was a great property manager. And the property management business is a business of people who are very much overlooked and not celebrated. It's just kind of a necessary evil. And because of or that- Or yelled at. Right, they get yelled at. It's a, it's a thank, to put it bluntly, it's a thankless job. Mm -hmm. So I've got a mentality of just treat people incredibly well, pay them well, incentivize them, and give them a balanced life, like have them have opportunity to do things. Um, and our, our property manager, the first one I ever hired, she, um, she helps us pick our community outreach program. She's really involved in all these things. So she feels enriched by some of the things we let her do, but at the same time, now we've built support and these types of things around her. So her job is, it's never easy, but it's, it's, it, it, it's easier than it used to be. Yeah. So we got the, the hub and spoke. So let's talk about how we feed it. Yep. Right. So yep. what does Kava companies look like today as far as people? Uh, a ton. So you ask how you feed it. 
you feed a business like these with leads. Yeah, that, that, that's the most. The, the middle is generate you know real estate leads. Without leads, it go it all stops. Yeah. So where they come from will change depending on market cycle and tech and all these other stuff. Um, so I'm going to answer this question probably a little bit different than you were thinking, but this I'm going to answer it. So this is what my week looks like. Um, I've got two kids. I usually I get up every day. I work out. Um, I usually spend some time with my kids and my wife, and um, I'll be doing emails and such early, and then you know, b- between like seven thirty and eight thirty, I'm kind of with family. Eight uh, forty eight a.m. We do a team call, and then on Monday we spend all of our Monday on sales, sales and acquisition, sales acquisition, making sure deals are going to close, problem solving, leads, lead gen, um, prospects, everything. Now, in the old days, I used to sit through this meeting for hours myself. Like during COVID, it was going till six, seven, eight o'clock at night. Um, now I have some people who run it and then they give me condensed notes. That happens on Monday. Um, let me get into the sales team. I have someone who is an integrations manager who basically handles, <laughs> sorry guys, someone who handles lead gen all the way through just ideas and putting things into systems like Salesforce and all that. And then I have someone who is a general manager in the company who is a vice president as well. And um, he is this essentially the sales manager. I've got a bunch of admins that report to him. Um, I think we have seven full-time acquisitions managers. Uh, I think we have eight lead gen people. We have two direct follow-up people. So we've got a whole team of people that are on that sales side of the business. Um, That call is greater than 20, 25 people. And we have it on Monday and we kind of talk about everything. We have back office, we have settlement settlement coordination. We've got our bookkeeping department that's on there. And we have our construction department that attends as well. One of their proxies kind of comes. So everybody on Monday, it's all about sales and setting up the week. Tuesday morning is our property management meeting after our team call. Then Tuesday is about construction. So at the end of the day, Tuesday, I know and I have reports on everything that has to do with sales and everything that has to do with construction. Uh, Wednesday and Thursday are a little bit more free form from my perspective. Now our lead gen team gets together. Our sales team trains with you. We've got other stuff going on. And then on Friday, I get reports for every department. So as I go into the weekend, I kind of know where I stand. What do I need to talk about on Monday? What am I thinking about? I have updates on all my houses that are under construction, where are our rents, everything. So we've got department heads that run construction, sales, property management, and the office. So everybody has a department head there. Uh, We got leaders at there. And then I have people who are kind of mid-level managers below them. uh, And I'm kind of at the top of all of that. So for property management, it's one person? Um, it's actually two ladies, and then a service department of six people. And then the construction team, because yep. everything's in-house. Yep. How many people are on the construction so team? So when I say everything's in-house from a construction standpoint, all the management, we don't actually self-perform any work, but we manage it. Uh, the general manager is at the top. I have a construction manager that runs it. I have an inside office manager who runs the construction department. She has an assistant and an estimator, an estimating assistant. On the project management side, I have three senior project managers and two lower level project managers that are learning. A lot of people. A lot. And then what, a lot of people are really concerned about marketing costs, but I'm, I'm guessing possibly in your, in oh, your shoes. Even close. Your labor. My, my overhead's three times my marketing cost. Yeah, so what is your labor cost every month or your total overhead? I mean, it's almost $2 million a year just for, <sighs> just for payroll. $2 million a year for payroll. Payroll. 
wow. Um, so then how about your marketing? Somewhere between 500 and 750 annually. Okay. So 50K plus a month. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to spend more. Like I'm trying to spend more because I know like if I spend a dollar on TV, I get five back. Yeah. So we're working with our TV company. Like, all right, can we double our budget? Because mm-hmm. if I can double my budget, I can get five extra returns. See, I was going to ask a different question. Okay. Does any of this keep you up at night? It doesn't. The balance sheet does. Like what has cash? Like mm-hmm. where's cash at? Um, when you're a kid, you have this kind of belief that cash like if you if you have cash you're rich and if you don't have cash you're broke Mm -hmm. and what i realized as a business owner cash is just another thing to solve um staff keeps me up at night from time to time um especially if you know i'm about to lose a good person or a good person isn't performing or there's problems um and then the other thing that keeps me up at night is just cash like i want to buy a ton but you know sometimes i overbuy and it doesn't close so there's just things you got to balance and you're talking about as far as allocating the, the, the cash or? Yeah, allocating the cash, making sure you have enough, making sure you have reserves. When you're committing to something that you have the funds available. Right. Got it. Yeah. When I commit to it, I know we have the funds available, but then does, you know, do you have 30 closings that are going to push? Mm-hmm. They don't all close and are supposed to close. Like these things are not easy to get closed. They're, they're a pain in the ass. Yeah. And there's, you know, someone comes out of the woodwork, someone dies, like not to be insensitive, but these things happen. Then there's title problems and something comes up that you didn't expect. It's, it's like, it's a flipping mess. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you're looking at it and you're like, all right, I have $600,000 in wholesale fees this month. And you look up at the end of the month and it's like 250. That's a big difference. Yeah. So those are things that you have to be mindful of. But with the schedule that we've built that I talked to you about a second ago, I see these things coming. And now I have a bookkeeper who looks at this and it's like, okay, we got to talk about cash. Like, where do we do it? And now we're in a point where we have enough money where it's like, all right, do we move it from over here to over here to balance it? Like we, we, we have reserves and things in place. Now, these are things I didn't have for a while, but we have now. Right. Uh, so as far as profitability, because, you know, you've seen this, we, we, we talked about this outside of this is everyone talks about revenue and revenue is great and all. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's what you keep, not Correct. what you bring in. Correct. What kind of profitability running that kind of overhead are you bringing in? Sure. So what you make and what you keep are two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, there's a couple of ways to answer that question. Um, we'll do 5.5 in revenue mm-hmm. this year on the real estate side. I mean, it's a significant amount of money. Um, but I also have a head of tax, or excuse me, uh, a CFO who used to be the head of tax at Dominion Power. Who provides power out here? Out here? Yeah. Uh, City of Phoenix. Okay. That's literally who does it? Yeah. Like in most major markets, it's like Florida, Florida Power and Light is all Florida mm. uh, for their utilities, right? Like there's like the Southern Company does it in Georgia. So where I grew, where I live, Dominion Power from basically Pennsylvania to South Carolina, it's all Dominion Power. Oh, wow, it's a monopoly. It's a huge company. Um, Dominion Power's former head of tax is my CFO. Mm -hmm. So my tax bill is really low. And we put strategies in place that take time. Now we follow the rules and we do everything the way you're supposed to, but we have a really good strategy to not pay as much as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. So um, what we do in a lot of instances, we utilize depreciation. Um, and owning as much stuff as we do, you basically get a credit from the government if you own those. So I have to make $650,000 every year before I pay one penny in tax because of depreciation. Um, there's something called bonus depreciation, which is happening right now. 
Um, we did what was called an accounting methods change, which forced a loss. So the goal here is to make as much, to keep as much as humanly possible and do so legally. And that's what we try and do. Got it. I can say it to you this way. I have a very successful business. We make a very healthy margin. And then we have every possible strategy in place from a cash management and tax strategy standpoint. Yeah. So let's pretend you decide today, like, you know what? I've had it. I'm done. I've got 300 properties. I'm ready to turn everything off. Could you today? Turn everything off what? Like as walk far as away? Like walk away from wholesaling, flipping, all this other stuff. With everything you got going on right now. Um, could I? Sure. So I'm going to answer this question. I'm going to start at a different point. It's not what you asked me. If I feel like I wake up today and I have to do this, the first thing I do is I don't make that decision today. Uh, I weigh that decision carefully. Yeah. Over time, I seek counsel. I talk to people before I eradicate something that's taken mm -hmm. me a decade and a half to build. Um, there is certainly a way that I could cut overhead, mm -hmm. um, certainly with staff, and we could be profitable. Well, I'm asking this question because... You're going hard. Yeah. You are not taking it easy. You're not taking your foot off the gas. No. But you could. Yeah. How does Frank stay motivated? Kind of like Frank did in sixth grade. I want to win. Yeah. And I want to do. And I did a presentation about things that are impactful to me. And those things are giving back and doing things that are beyond me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm 46 years old. I got married you know, four and a half years ago. I've got two young children, so I have more to deal with than just me. Um, but the other thing that many people don't talk about is I love building a team. Like, I really do. I don't talk about it publicly very mm -hmm. often. My favorite thing is building a team. My favorite thing is achieving through others. I don't do anything anymore. I manage, I follow up, I check in. That's the stuff that I do. I love when Angelo does something cool and mm -hmm. he shares it with me or he figures out something or he feels proud of an accomplishment or he's trained someone who's done great. I love it when Eddie does it or Carla does it or Cindy does it. Like that's the stuff that charges me up. So, right. I mean, I could have quit 20 years ago when I had a couple million bucks. Like, I, like when I quit my corporate job, I could have stopped. Right. But like what the hell am I gonna do? It would have been very boring. Like this is sharpening, the, <laughs> it's sharpening the ax, it's getting involved, it's building, it's creative, it, it requires thought, competition, love that stuff. Yeah. 